Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished from the Classical Ideas podcast. This is a podcast run by Greg Soden, and it's absolutely terrific. If you like the NBN, I'm sure that you'll like Classical Ideas. You can find it at classicalideaspodcast.lipson.com or on iTunes. I hope you enjoy the following interview. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. A prolific author and speaker, Alan Watts was one of the first to interpret Eastern wisdom for a Western audience. Born outside London in 1915, he discovered the nearby Buddhist lodge at a young age. After moving to the United States in 1938, Alan became an Episcopal priest for a time and then relocated to Millbrook, New York, where he wrote his pivotal book, The Wisdom of Insecurity a message for an age of anxiety. In 1951, he moved to San Francisco where he began teaching Buddhist studies and in 1956 began his popular radio show, Way Beyond the West. By the early 60s, Allen's radio talks aired nationally and the counterculture movement adopted him as a spiritual spokesman. He wrote and traveled regularly until his passing in 1973. You can find information on his work at www.allenwatts.org. My guest today is Alan's daughter, Ann Watts, one of the co-editors of the new book, The Collected Letters of Alan Watts, released in January 2018 from New World Library. Ann Watts is a profoundly loving facilitator and educator who is committed to creating a world where everyone wins. She honors each individual for the gift she or he is and believes that love and nurturance are the most important aspects in human healing. In her workshops and private sessions, Anne creates a safe, non-judgmental environment where clients experience being seen, heard, and validated. She has the ability to read between the lines and hone in on the heart of the matter in a way that supports clients in healing their relationship with past and current issues as they grow into the person they have always dreamed of being. She regularly leads workshops at the Esalen Institute, and you can find her upcoming events online at www.annwatts.org. Today, Ann and I are discussing The Life of Alan Watts, Part 2 in my series with Joan and Ann Watts. Together, they edited the new book, The Collected Letters of Alan Watts. Without further delay, I bring you Ann Watts.
Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I am here today with Ann Watts, the one of the editors of the new Collected Letters of Alan Watts. Ann, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. I'm delighted to be invited. Thank you. So I want to start off by talking to you about a quote that you wrote in the book. So this collection is an extraordinary depiction of Alan's private thoughts in life. And deep in the book, you write, quote, He always had tender feelings for all his children. He just had no idea how to be a fully responsible father. He did know how to work, and his work was extraordinary. I loved that quote. And as soon as I saw it, I circled it and wrote, Anne, uh, next to the, <laughs> in, in the book. So I see in your notes that Alan was definitely, he definitely wore different masks in public and in private. And he was kind of a different as, as a parent and as a public figure. Millions of people have known Alan via his face that he projected to the world as a scholar. But what was he like in his private life with, uh, with the kids? Well, um, I have to say, first of all, that um, Jones, in my experience, may be different in some respects to the other five children. So I can't speak for all of us. I can speak for myself for sure. Absolutely. And, um, and so my experience of him was that he was often an absentee father. He just wasn't available. And um, so he wasn't available because he was working and he was gone a lot and uh, or he was writing and he'd be completely engrossed in his writing. And I also uh, felt like in many ways he wasn't available to be emotionally supportive. Um, and so because he would want to stay out of any conflict. So it, I didn't feel like he had my back, so to speak. But on the other hand, as you know, as a, as a father, I called him daddy and he was um, he was playful and creative, and he loved to do things like draw with us, or uh, sing songs with us, or uh, dance, and, you know, just, I mean, he was really um, very, uh, very playful and, and sweet to hang out with when he was around. So, you know, I felt like that was, um, you know, I felt good about that. I just wish that there were more times that that was that he was available. Yeah. Um, so your letters collection that you and Joan, your sister, just released on New World Library, you have about 400 letters in the book, right? Does that sound about right? Probably. <laughs> and so I'm curious if this is like, is this like the collection to end all collections for Alan Watts's letters, or is there more um, out there that you may be digging into in the future? I doubt it. I really think that um, we called the most significant letters and uh, the ones that really were meaningful to his life and what he was up to. And so, um, so I don't expect that there's going to be a follow-up book. I think this is pretty much the definitive book from, from uh, in terms of the collected letters and in terms of Jones and my uh, perspective of that journey. Uh, do yeah. you do you uh, predict any other large scale Alan projects? Uh, the other day, Joan mentioned to me that Alan was like a talented painter. 
Um, are there any other like collected artworks or like photography collections that we might expect someday? Do you see yourself doing another large scale project like that? I think if we were to do something along those lines, it would be a, a much smaller scale. I mean, I think this, this is like a tome, this book, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's a big, uh, work. And, you know, the wonderful thing for me is that, um, it was really engaging to read. Um, there, there are moments when the letters get really heady, but mostly I found, and, and I've always struggled to read Alan's books because I, they're just more heady than, than I can, than I'm really willing to slog through. <laughs> they are challenging. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, um, but this book, you know, I'm, I'm starting to read it again. And, uh, and, and it's just as interesting now as it was when we first went through the letters. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, um, I think it's an amazing collection. I think he was, he was such a prolific writer. He loved writing <laughs> and it's cute because he often apologizes <laughs> for the length of his letters, you know, he does. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry to go on so much, but, but he really was so engaged in mm -hmm. whatever he was writing about. So, um, so that, that was fun. I appreciated that. Yeah. I'm reading, uh, still the mind introduction to meditation, uh, by Alan. I'm reading what is Tao, what is Zen, his little series. And I completely agree. The reading his letters is completely different than reading his academic uh, and scholarly works. So mm -hmm. I think that if there's anybody out there looking for an accessible voice of getting into Alan Watts's work, that this would almost be a fantastic place to start before you get into his deep philosophical work. So I completely agree with everything you just said. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of my favorite things about the book is the large collection of well-known folks that are in the book, including like Gary Snyder, Aldous Huxley, Joseph Campbell. I mean, it was just a delight to sift through these. And I read on the back cover of the book in which um, Gary Snyder, the famous uh, Pulitzer Prize winning poet, wrote, it took some years after his death before I could see and appreciate the whole. So your relationship with Alan throughout the book is undeniably complex, and your relationship with him, um, it varies, as you mentioned in your first statement. So do you agree with Snyder? Did it take um, some years for you to appreciate the whole like how was Alan how has he evolved in your mind from when you were a kid until now hmm. um well um I found that um as I became an adult uh we really formed a friendship and um and that was that was quite delightful um and, you know, I knew him as a family, family man of, you know, my dad and uh, as a social person. And I was often present when he was giving uh, lectures ever since I was a little kid. And uh, and, you know, I was around a lot of the his students and the celebrities in his life. Um, you know, we used to go and visit. Um, Aldous Huxley and his family down in Ohio, and um, so uh, you know those 
that was just part of my growing up experience. And uh, but I have to say that um, reading the letters gave me a much um, deeper perspective of his experience throughout his life. And um, one of the things that I think I said in the book was that I was stunned by his brilliance at such a young age. I'm reading these letters and I'm thinking, how old were you when you wrote this? Yeah. You know, and and so one of the things where that shows up, too, is a letter he wrote to um, Carl Jung when he was still quite young. And he writes to Jung like like an equal. Mm hmm. You know, like there's he, everyone he wrote to, whether it was Christmas Humphreys or Carl Jung or anyone else, it was very much, here's my mind meeting your mind. And, um, and so, and I really, I'm really curious about what you have to say about this. And here's some information that might be useful to you. And that kind of thing that was just like, um, really amazing to see. I love the fact that throughout the story, he like he really grows into his relationship with you, it seems, as you get older. like He was so complimentary of a lot of things in your lifestyle whenever you became an adult that I can right. see that he really thought that you were amazing um, as you got older. Like As you mentioned, the friendship developed, so I loved seeing that. Right. Well, actually, it was pretty astonishing to me. I did not know he thought about me the way he did when I'm reading these letters and, um, and I'm, I'm seeing him describing me to other people. And I'm like, wow, you know, like, because he never, like we were, we just were together and he didn't say to me, I'm loving this about you or that about you or any of that the kind of thing that I might say to my kids, mm -hmm. <laughs> kids, you know, it's like he, he, we just were together. And, uh, and so it was quite an eye opener. Um, yeah. So, uh, it was, it's, it's been such an interesting journey, you know, because Joan says this also that, um, she was the favorite child mm -hmm. and, and, um, my story was always that she was a wanted child. She was born when my parents were very much in love with each other. And, um, and so that was like so wonderful and exciting. And by the time I came along, things had started to fall apart in my parents' marriage. And, uh, and my mother really wanted a boy and I wasn't a boy. And, um, and, you know, I felt like she took her misery out on me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, which daddy describes in the book. And, um, and so, and then his second wife, um, there was a similar kind of experience. Um, and so, you know, um, it was, it was tough it, until the time when my grandparents came and saw what was going on, uh, and, uh, took me to live in England with them. And I went to girls boarding school and I knew at the time they, they had saved my life. It mm -hmm. was really amazing and so good for me <laughs> yeah so this childhood that you're describing right now it's it's like it's not a rosy picture the whole time 
um, even though your dad is like a famous philosopher, you know, so there's complexity there. And Joan describes you in the book as always feeling like you hadn't been, you weren't able to do anything right, that you were always feeling like you were naughty, that you were doing things wrong, which is something that a lot of kids feel like if your parents always say, don't do this, don't do that. It's just a kind of a result. So as a mom yourself, you just mentioned your own kids. So as a mom yourself, when you think back about these early memories of feeling that way, how did they influence your own parenting? Like, what did you do as a parent to kind of counteract what you had experienced? That's very complex for me. I So I have to say, first of all, I just want to admit to I was naughty. I was curious. Mm. And I was always into things, you know, and... um and so I, I remember one time we were at my grandmother's house and she had servants and the table was laid for one of her many elegant, fancy dinners and applesauce had been put out for people to clear their palate, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I was going around putting my finger in and tasting each one. <laughs> <laughs> I loved applesauce. And and so Lawrence came in and caught me red-handed, and 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 I looked at him, and I just I this is just a, a often told story, um, just tasting Lawrence, just tasting. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, the, the, there were always things, and then there would be things that I get would get blamed for that I didn't do, kind of thing. So fast forward to when I'm having my own children. Um, I was 20 years old when I gave birth to my first child and really not well prepared to be a parent. I, I didn't really, um, you know, I knew I was good with children on the whole. I had done a lot of babysitting over the years and, um, and I love kids and I loved my children. And I think the thing that I did best as a parent was to let them know how much I loved them. Mm-hmm. And, um, so they always knew that that was the, that was like the major thing. And, um, but you know, it, it was, it was somewhat of a struggle for me to, uh, to be the kind of mom that I wish I could have been. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I know I made lots of mistakes as a mother and, uh, and, you know, nowadays I can say to people some things that could be done differently than I did them as a parent. But, um, yeah, I felt like I came into parenthood, uh, kind of blind, you know, like not really, um, not really having had a good model for that. The reason why I wanted to ask you that question in particular is also kind of selfish on my part. I have a four-year-old and she is very, she's a lovely, lovely, curious little girl and she's very busy. And so I wanted to ask your question on like, uh, on your experience of, you know, what should I do? So I'm really glad that I asked. Thank you. Right. Right. Well, let me just tell you one thing that I frequently tell parents now, and that is, um, there's this thing when we're busy and we're doing things. And so, and the child wants our attention and our tendency is to say, I'm busy, not now. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm a strong proponent of people putting a bookmark in what they're doing, even if they're cooking, put, t- take it off the burner and crouch down and give your child your full attention for now. And my experience of kids is that's all it takes. It doesn't take a long time. 
you give them the attention right now and they're off to the next thing. They're, they're, they're satisfied with that. And, um, and so that's kind of the thing that I often tell parents now, like, you know, stop and, and really pay attention in, in my, uh, counseling, uh, experience. I often hear people say my children are the most important thing in my life or my spouse and my children, but they're not living their lives like that's true. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I think, you know, just stopping and paying attention says you're important. You matter to me. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, after we're done talking today, I'm picking out my four-year-old from her preschool. So I will take these words away with me today. I promise. <laughs> that would be great. So Alan's letters in the book are beautiful interactions between him and his parents. And that was the thread that I pulled through the entire book is always really gravitating towards. I gravitated more towards his letters to his parents than between famous people like Aldous Huxley and Joseph Campbell and Gary Snyder. So um, Joan mentioned that some letters from his parents were among the letters you sorted through. What were the other sides of these conversations like? Because we read Alan's voice, but we don't hear Lawrence. Right. Well, here's the thing. One of the reasons we didn't include those letters is that they are really hard to read. His handwriting was very difficult to read. So I um, I can't really answer that question. Mm. I know that... Um, you know, when my my grandparents were not happy about the divorce with Eleanor and they were not happy about the divorce with Dorothy. Um, and and they let Alan know that in no uncertain terms that that did not sit well with them, um, even though he tried to kind of sugarcoat it and be as nice as he could. I think they wrote uh, very kind letters to both. Uh, both my mother and my uh, my stepmother Dorothy, and um, and my my grandfather was very very fond of Jane Allen's uh, third and last wife. Um, they he they got along like a house of fire. So <laughs> you know. So while they weren't happy with with um, the fact that there were these divorces, um, they um, and, you know, by that time, my grandfather was pretty uh, not so much with my mother, but by the, with Dorothy. I think he really knew that my father was seeing other women and, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, he wasn't happy with that. Um, but they were just so close. They were like best friends um, all of my father's life. Um, he and his dad in particular were were best, best friends. Imagine if they had Skype when they were alive. <laughs> you know? Right, right. It would have been a regular thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's so yeah. painful that you and I are able to do this just like that and thinking about how much that would have benefited those two guys to be able right. to do that with each other. Um, mm. it's, it just makes me sad kind of thinking about it. Yeah, but you know what, Gary? Um, we wouldn't have those letters. True. 
And and that's the thing that's a real treasure is that we have those letters mm-hmm. where he describes what was going on and um, and all of that. And and so if he'd been skyping, we wouldn't have that that record. Yeah. And and that's going to be something you know like if for the future, all of that kind of thing isn't going to be present anymore. We're not going to have those kinds of archives. And, uh, and I, I feel the missing of that, you know, I feel, and one of the things, you know, Alan was so good with language and, um, I feel like language is deteriorating because of our social media. Mm -hmm. Everything's shorthand and pictures and, (laughs) And, uh, and so, um, it's interesting to see what that might morph into. I don't know. I'm interested indeed. I'm a high school teacher. So I see these types of things every day, every conversation, every comment you just made. Um, I look at every single day in my job. So it's important. I'm really, I'm really glad everything that you just said about the letters being, uh, there and available. It matters. It does matter. Yeah. Yeah. So. In the book, I noticed that you did include a letter from your mother, Eleanor Watts. Right. And so her relationship with Alan, we can watch it kind of go downhill in the letters, and you referred to that a lot just now. Um, but it seems like she also wasn't really loving her time. I really, First of all, I really gravitated towards the letters in Alan's priesthood years. I thought that was really interesting. But it seems that Eleanor was not really loving her time as a priest's wife because she refers to herself as a Taoistic Vedantist in Christian garb, which I loved. As if she was knowing that she was like wearing a costume or playing dress up. Did you ever discover anything else about these conflicted views in her life? Um, I wasn't so present to it. She, you know... I think she really kind of, she had both things going on and, but her adaption, her adoption of Christianity was different from my father's. Um, and so she became very, um, uh, almost, almost like a Catholic in her, um, her way of, uh, acceptance into, of Christianity. I think she desperately needed it um, to help her through what she was going through with Alan. And, um, uh, and, but when she married Carlton, they became, um, uh, what is it? Um, Quakers. They became Quakers. Yeah. And, and that was where she was, but she always had the strong Zen influence in her life. I mean, that was part of her life ever since she was a girl and particularly in her teenage years. But I would like to just read, uh, cause you mentioned that to me earlier and I, I um, went back to this letter to Henry Miller and can I read a, a paragraph? Of course. Yeah. So uh, she says, I was so delighted to get your letter and hear firsthand of your interest in Zen. Yes, in a way, Zen is it for me, too. My husband calls me a Taoist Vedantist in Christian garb. So that was my dad's name for her. 
A bit of a mix-up, but I suppose he's right. Strangely enough, I never understood the Eastern doctrines until I became a Christian, until I became a Christian. But without them, I would never have become one as it is, rather a robbing uh, Peter to pay Paul a fare at best. My mother, whom you probably know through her husband, Shigetsu Sasaki, remains a scholastic Buddhist, but is producing some very valuable material through the First Zen Institute. It's interesting that she says scholastic Buddhist followed by but. (laughs) (laughs) Right? She is working on another book, which she hopes to publish in the fall. I do feel that Sokian Sasaki, his religious name, his work is the most lucid we have had in English, and it is wonderful that she is able to give it to the public. So, um, so in, in a way, she's introducing Henry Miller to the work of my grandmother as well. Um, and um, what's really fun for me is that, so there that is in the collected letters. And then just recently, um, a woman by the name of Janica Anderson, who's been doing extensive research on my grandmother, um, Ruth Sasaki, um, wrote a book, and it's called Zen Odyssey, the story of Sokian, Ruth Fuller Sasaki, and the birth of Zen in America. And what is so fun for me is that this book so dovetails with the collected letters. There are many references to the same people and the same experiences and but from different perspectives, like this book is about Ruth and her perspective. And, um, and so uh, it's just, it's really fun to have both of those um, together. And, and I'm amazed that they both came out simultaneously almost. Um, well, and you got to spend some time in Japan, right? With Ruth Sasaki. I did. So can you tell us a little bit about like li- um, living with a Zen Rinzai Zen grandmother in, in Japan? Yeah, well, uh, my sister lived there for a whole year. And um, while she was there, there was a man who did an article in Time magazine about our grandmother. And he looked at my sister and said, I know just the man for you to meet. And he's the one who introduced her to her first husband. And um, he was a lieutenant JG in the, in the Navy. Anyway, they got engaged and then um, got married there in Japan. And I was flown out from girls boarding school in England. Um, and, where, and I came via the U.S., joined my mother, and we came to Japan for the wedding. And... Um, so, you know, my grandmother's home, the the place where she lived, was completely Japanese style. So it was all the tatami uh, floors. Everything was floor, you know, like the tables were down on the floor at level. And the uh, beds were put away in cupboards during the day and rolled out at night. All of that whole thing. And however, uh, my grandmother did have um, a staff who ran the house. So people who cooked the meals and who, um, uh, you know, and she had taught, so she ate both Japanese style and Western style things that she taught them how to cook. Oh, nice. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and so, so she had this lovely area, the living area, and then she built 
a zendo, which was the place where people came and did their meditation. It's a beautiful building. And, uh, and she built a library. And in that library is where she did her research and translations. And she had a whole team, including Gary Snyder, uh, working for her there. And, and the book, Zen Odyssey, puts all that out there and uh, has photographs of all of that. Anyway, it was, I, I loved it. I love, um, because it's been a part of my life always, both with my grandmother and my father, there's always been this flavor of Japanese that, that I love. And particularly the, the more old time Japanese, for instance, I love the old architecture, the wooden buildings. They're just so beautiful and the sliding walls and the whole, all of that. And um, I'm not so fond of the big concrete buildings that they have so much of now. Um, but, um, but their aesthetic, um, the gardens and the way they do their bonsai and the food and the way they serve their food, everything's a work of art. And, uh, that was a thrill for me as a teenager. I was lucky as an adult, um, my, uh, I was able to come back and do some workshops in Japan and while I was there, the producer of our workshops took me to um, back to where to the um, my grandmother's temple down at uh, Daitokuji in Kyoto. And so I got to see it again and uh, meet the Roshi who was currently there and and kind of, you know, take that trip down memory lane because very little had changed. It's it's aged and it's worn, but uh, but it's basically the same as it was. I'm really looking forward to reading Zen Odyssey now. I can't wait. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to get it as soon as I possibly can. Yeah. I love like the playful competition that Alan seems to have between he and Ruth Sasaki in the book. Like it seems like both of them are like he has this immense respect for her and she's kind of like eyeing him warily from over here. But it seems like they have this this mutual respect going on, even though their uh, their paths had separated when Eleanor and Alan had gotten divorced. Well, I, I would say she um, she was kind of in awe of how how he was able to be so popular and so um, so read. But I mean, she scoffed at the fact that he wasn't a serious student, and um, uh, and and you know he. Um, he wasn't a meditator. He did, he, not that he didn't ever meditate. He did. And I think, um, I recall, uh, Gary saying that the two of them, uh, meditated together. And, um, and my father went to some very deep places, but you know, he, I think part of it was, is he didn't take things. He didn't want to be so serious about everything. And my grandmother was very serious. She was very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Everything was by the book, Mm -hmm. completely by the book for her. And I think part of that was really important to her because she really wanted to be accepted uh, in Japan. She she wanted that. And uh, she was able to prove to them 
that she could do what was required. Even though she was a woman and even though she was a Westerner, she could do what was required to be accepted into their, uh, their brotherhood. And, um, and so, uh, you know, she, she was very much strictly by the book. The interesting thing is that very few people know about Ruth Sasaki, mm-hmm. whereas people all over the world have heard of Alan Watts and yeah. read his books. And, and, you know, she did some important work, um, but only the, the, the deepest scholars access that work. Yeah. And, um, and so it's so interesting that in her seriousness and in that scholarly approach that she had, and not that Alan wasn't a scholar, he was an amazing scholar, um, and, and voracious about information and, and learning things in, in lots of different areas. And I think that was another part of it for him. He was interested in more than uh, one, one road, you know. He was interested in, in so many areas, including science and art and uh, music and all of that. He just had a voracious appetite. Yeah, there was one video I watched of him on YouTube recently where he's standing in a field in a wonderful sweater with long hair, and he's talking about how his worldview was a mixture of Buddhist and Hinduism. So I could tell that he was not on one path. He seemed to be on multiple paths at once, which is something that I identify with within myself as well. Um, there's so many interesting things to learn about so many things that I would consider myself more of an Alan Watts than a Ruth Sasaki if I had to like see what practice is like. Because Rinzai temples, I mean, it's a very strict Zazen practice. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult. So um, I love that distinction that Ruth seems to say that Alan's not doing Zazen. You know what I right. mean? Right. Right. And, you know, he he attempted it uh, with uh, the man who became her husband, Sokian Sasaki. And um, and so he, he, you know, he thought he had found his his teacher in Sokian. But. I think Alan didn't have the patience to, um, to, or the ability to really surrender to a master. And Sokian was every bit as um, uh, severe and, you know, by the book and it's got to be like this and you've got to reach, you've got to reach this level or you're not going anywhere. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's not real. And, uh, and so, um, apparently he was just an extraordinary, uh, man, Sokian. Um, and my dad had great love and respect for him as well. Um, but he just, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to be that, that student that went to that detail. And, and if, and if he had, then we wouldn't have so many works from him, most likely. So uh, not only is Alan, has he written so many books, but he is all over the internet to this day. He is all over YouTube. Um, Do you ever like visit with him on YouTube and his lectures collections? You know, uh, occasionally people send me a link to something and I'll, I'll listen to that. And, and some of them I think are really delightful. Um, 
what is the, um, the cartoon group that, um, uh, oh, I can't remember their name, the very famous cartoons that they had on TV. The, maybe they do The Simpsons, is that it? Oh, yeah. Who've done who've done a bunch of uh, caricatures of Alan and and speaking his words and uh, and they're great. I love them. They're really fun, and I think Alan would love them. Yeah. And um, uh, and so I've enjoyed that. But you know, my life is so full and so busy. I do not have time to be searching around and you know going down memory lane in that way. Um, it's, I just have so much on my plate. So that's kind of, uh, I, I, I don't do a lot of that, no. Do you, uh, do you have any like artifacts from Alan's life? Um, like in the book, he talks about tons of temple gongs and kimonos. Uh, do you have any artifacts of Alan's that you um, treasure? You know what? Um, I did have... Um, some of those things, and he, uh, I pass them on to my children now. Nice. You know, like I've I've passed a lot of my uh, belongings, you know, stuff that belonged to my grandmother and stuff that belonged to my mother and stuff that belonged to my father. I've passed it on down um, so they could have it and enjoy it now and rather than later. Um, so I have, um, I don't, not sure that I actually have, anything other than photographs and all things are impermanent right right i do have a few pieces of his uh artwork and his uh calligraphy i do have some of that yeah cool so one of the things that i really loved about your essays in the book as opposed to jones is that you really latched on to like alan's political letters and you seem to love his Mm. his political letters that he wrote which start to spring up in his last decade of life so what do you think would be some of alan's thoughts on our unusual era that we find ourselves in today (laughs) well you know i mean he wrote about uh, police brutality back then Mm -hmm. and he um he wanted the government to stay out of um Native American religions and practices and stuff like that. He wanted them to stay out of it, leave them alone, uh, allow them the grace of their own culture. And, um, and he, uh, he was vociferous about, you know, policemen should be doing the work about keeping us safe and, uh, staying out of our bedrooms and, um, and and then he was a strong proponent of drugs like marijuana and um, LSD should also be monitored more by by doctors, but not by the law. And that you know that making it illegal would make it criminal, and rightly. And so yeah, that's exactly what happened. And uh, you know, so here we are in an era where the people are saying. Uh, let's let marijuana be legal now because we can see that it, it has many helpful purposes and uh, it's not this big, horrible, dangerous thing. And uh, But there are people who still have their prejudice about it and they want to make it illegal. But it wasn't working when it was illegal. Mm-hmm. 
it didn't stop people. It's the same thing as prohibition back in the years, you know, when they banned alcohol. And so what people got was stronger alcohol than ever, you know, that was made in somebody's backyard, you know. And and so you're not going to suppress that kind of thing. And uh, I think Alan would be uh, absolute, absolutely up in arms. And I guess what's so interesting to me is things haven't really changed all that much. You know, like much of what he was writing about back then, is it's what we're dealing with right now. It's the same. He seems like he's really ahead of his time politically, yeah. like speaking out wise. Right, right. And uh, But I feel like all of his work is um, timeless in some way. I agree. It, it's it's like a great, it's like Bach or Beethoven or, you know, the, the great composers. Their music is timeless. It's always uh, something that people will uh, appreciate in, in so many ways. And I think Alan's work is the same. I'm I'm blown away. I've, I've just recently a uh, 15-year-old from uh, I think it was Sweden or Denmark uh, wrote me and talked to me about how Alan's work was affecting him and how he was touched. And he started asking me questions about my childhood and that kind of thing. And so I told him about the book. You know, yeah. <laughs> so, you know all the answer all the answers to the questions you're asking me are in the book. <laughs> Lovely. You know, but but 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And, and I often have had teenagers speak to me like that and, and say say that or or I'll meet uh, adults who say that in that in there when they became uh, when they were teenagers, they found Alan and what a difference it had made for them um, finding him. So, you know. Yeah. Um, the, so um, I could totally picture a 103-year-old Alan Watts with a pipe hanging out of his mouth at Standing Rock or protesting like oil spills. I could see I could see that happening. Like so whenever I was whenever I hear about current events in today's news like indigenous rights protests or pipeline uh ruptures, you know, I could picture Alan Watts being involved in that kind of stuff now that I've read this letters collection. Well, I think he would be involved, but I think he would be much more likely to be writing letters, mm-hmm. making phone calls than he would to be actually be there. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's actually what he did. And uh, and I think because uh, partly because he felt like he was really good at expressing himself through his writing. And um, and that was his best venue um, for that. Um, not to say that he Maybe he would have been, you know, if people had invited him, he might have been there, um, certainly to speak out. Definitely, he he was an ally in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a favorite section in the book? Like they're broken up by eras in his life. Do you have a particular section that you feel like you'll go to for many years to come? Well, I have to say that the first section, which is, involves the letters from his childhood, you know, when he was young, when he was away at boarding school that he wrote to his parents, um, and uh, and his early letters when he moved to New York with my, uh, my mother, a lot of that, the descriptions of, of America were so amazing, and he was so taken with his experience. 
Um, and, you know, he writes often like a painter. Uh, he told me once that he thought he was going to be an artist. It never occurred to him he was going to be a writer. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And, uh, uh, but, um, yeah, so um, I think that uh, that's kind of like really the most fun in some ways for me um, to read that. And uh, some of the other sort of the middle years are more difficult because of my own difficult uh, childhood. And, um, and then the letters towards the end, as you say, when he's, um, when he's really quite politically motivated, um, some of those letters are very, very interesting to me. Yeah. You seem to like the, uh, the, the commentary on the love letters from you in particular was very funny. I was laughing uh, when I was reading your essays about his love letters. Were those fun for you to find in the, in the stacks? Um, I don't know about fun. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it, it's a little bit, um, uh, you know, a, a window into your parents' sex life uh, and their, you know, um, that romantic, um, um, ooing and eyeing kind of thing that he did quite, uh, quite a lot with Jano. Um, oh boy. It, it was, it was a bit much, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, Joan and I tried to tone it down some because it was so, um, it, it was so extreme and it was interesting to me that, um, you know, the, the level of, um, goo goo gaga attachment kind of thing that he had with her, um, was not like anything else I saw anywhere, you know? And, um, I mean, he certainly, um, he had a very loving relationship with that poet, uh, Jean Burden, and uh, which who Joan and I had never heard of until we got involved in this book. Oh wow! We had never even heard of her, so that was a very well kept secret from certainly from us. And um, so it was a fascinating experience. I I think she's an amazing poet. You know, I've read well, some work. the the poem that you mentioned that she wrote about Alan. I went right. and found that online in an old literary journal, and I read it, and I was really blown away. So I was totally turned on to a new poet's work that I've never even heard of either. So you yeah. brought Jean Burden to me as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, And I could see that there was this deep mutual respect, and there were some very deep levels at which they connected that was unique to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I could also, you know, she, she was quoted as saying... Um, women were like catnip to Alan. And, and I really thought that that was so right on, you know, and, uh, and that was difficult for her. You know, she, that was more than she was up for in terms of her own emotional, uh, harmony, I think. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So Joan and I spent quite a long time on Alan's later years and how things seemed to get away from him as far as his smoking and his vices that it was that ultimately led to a premature death in his life. Um, 
do you have any like favorite memories or things that you wanted to comment on as far as like Alan's later years go whenever you were grown up? Like how was he how did you find your relationship with him as you as he neared the end of his life? Well, I moved with my family to Raleigh, North Carolina, because my husband at the time, uh, Joel Andrews, um, was asked to be musician in residence in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And, um, and so I didn't have that same level of um, being around him. Um, and so really, the thing that I am so grateful for is that um, in 1973, on Easter vacation, Alan was in uh, Pennsylvania. I describe this in the book. Um, Mira and I drove up there to, uh, Mira being my daughter, she and I drove up uh, there to see him. And uh, we had a lovely time being with him. And uh, I am so grateful that we did that, that we did what it took to drive all that distance and be there because it was that November that he died. And um, so that that will always be a truly precious um, memory for me. And I just want to say, too, that it, another interesting thing is after he died, and I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the TV was on, and all of a sudden... I heard my father's voice. And I have to tell you, that was so weird and eerie. You know, like, like here is this man who's gone. He's not here anymore, but I'm hearing his voice. And uh, that, that it, it's just kind of a, a, a sort of mind-twisting experience. <laughs> you know, I've gotten very used to it now, but um, certainly right so soon after his death, it was really just the most bizarre thing. And I know that you attended his funeral at Green Gulch Farm, part of the San Francisco Zen Center, and that it was presided over by uh, Richard Baker Roshi, the Dharma right. heir of Shinryu Suzuki. What do you? Um, what stands out for the for the funeral that you remember? Well, of course, I loved the um, the ceremony and the you know. Again, I'm back in Japan. There, you know, right. In, and there's Zendo and, and the incense and the beauty of the altar and my dad's photograph on the altar and the beautiful garments that the Roshi and the people who were supporting him were wearing. And, um, and then the gathering of people, you know, and the, the, the gentleness of everyone that was there, how, you know, there'd be these little groups of, of people talking all around and Al Huang, uh, who finished his last book, Dow the Watercourse Way, um, had his bamboo flute and he played his flute there. And, you know, all, all of those things, it, it was really, really, Green Gulch is in a beautiful area. And it was, um, it felt exactly perfect mm -hmm. uh, for Alan. And uh, uh, so, and half of his ashes were, were uh, buried there. We all walked up the hill and went to the site uh, where the, his ashes were buried there. And then the other half are um, up at Druid Heights where he had been living. Mm -hmm. So um, Joan and I actually recently visited there and got to see the stupa and the whole, you know, 
the library, which is now returning itself to nature. And <laughs> so, is is, uh, is is Druid Heights? Is it kind of um, is it protected? Is anybody maintaining or or is it kind of deteriorating? I know that there's been I know that it's been kind of right. debated. Well, there's one couple that still lives there that were there at the time that my dad was there. And one of the houses there has been uh, continuously rented out. The state owns that property. It went back to the state after, um, after you know, as the various uh, members of that community have died, the state has then, um, you know, they, they now, it's part of parkland there. And the state has done nothing to preserve the buildings there is a group of people who would like to um, get permission from the state to preserve the buildings and have it as a retreat uh, center for artists and writers and, and that kind of thing, which is something that, that I, um, I absolutely have respect for, and it would be a lovely thing. However, on the, at the same time, Roger Summers, the man who built all the buildings there, um, he built them with the intent that they would go back to nature. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, and so I think the people who are living up there are really in, in support of that themselves. And the building that was um, partially Roger's uh, working studio and also living quarters um, on the other end, uh, it, it reminds me of the planet of the apes, you know, like, like the, the trees and the vines and the plants are growing inside the house and taking over, you know, and it, it's really an amazing sight. <laughs> so, so, um, the other houses, not so much, you know, they're, they're perfectly, um, you could, uh, resuscitate them, so to speak, um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I don't know that the park has any interest in doing anything other than letting the whole thing go back to nature. We'll see. So, Anne, I'm becoming mindful of, uh, of your time, and we're coming to the end of our hour here together. And I've loved our conversation so much. And I want you to go on a little um, theoretical journey here with me for a second. So I teach high school in Missouri in the middle of the country, and I have 145 students this semester. So if you were to walk into my classroom in front of a group of American teenagers, what do you think would be the most important things for them to know about the life and work of Alan Watts? Who? <laughs> Because he d he has this amazing cross generational influence, mm -hmm. and he really could, I think, be a meaningful voice to young people today. So, what do you think would resonate with Alan with young people today, if you were to explain it to them? Right. You know, I don't know how well equipped I am to answer that, given that I haven't been a student of his work. Um. And it would be interesting to me, I have never asked those people who told me that they got turned on to Alan in their teen years, what it was that that really struck them, right? Um, I know uh, 
one of the books he recommended to me when I was in my 20s um, that he was one of his favorite books. The two books he recommended to me, one was uh, The Wisdom of Insecurity and the other was uh, Nature, Man and Woman. And I would suspect that both of those books would be really valuable um, to our current crop of teens. And, um, and then the other thing I would say is to find him on YouTube because he's such an engaging uh, speaker that I think that, um, that a lot of people would be um, really delighted by what he had to say and and then go from there um, uh, I mean some of the things that he would say for instance would be do what you love right um, he talks about this whole business of um, people feeling like they have to be goal oriented and get somewhere and you know like and then and you get to this place and now you have to get to the next place and then you have to get to the next place. And there's always this kind of struggle um, to, you know, you're on this almost like this treadmill that just keeps going and going and going and you're not having any fun. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, that's, he really uh, strongly wanted people to do the things that, that they really love. And and that uh, that would enrich their lives. It's so amazing to me that you just brought up that because I actually watched a video segment of him talking about that two days ago, that exact Ooh. segment. And it really stands out to me because we tend to go from thing to thing to thing and we don't live for now. We live for some time where we are in the future that right. we're not at yet. So I think right. being in our lives, being in our bodies, realizing the moments that are looking us in the face right now, that really resonates with me every, right now as well. You know, the other thing about my father was he was a really good listener. And my experience of the youth today is how intelligent they are, how smart they are. And I think uh, being good listeners to them, to find out what they're thinking about and what matters to them uh, is something that we could all benefit from. And um, it's, you know, like for me in terms of the whole sexual revolution and um, uh, people uh, honoring people of different uh, it, sexual orientation, you know, whether you're, you call yourself heterosexual or you call yourself gay or you call yourself transsexual or you call yourself asexual or, you know, you live in a non-binary world or whatever, right? The kids are on it. Mm -hmm. They're on it. And they're not. And so many teenagers are saying, I am not, uh, I am not choosing to be either male or female. I am choosing to be uh, gender fluid. That's what I choose. And, and so, uh, and they all understand that language really well. And they no longer use the pronouns of he and she, but, but uh, other pronouns, 
air and a and am and there's a whole category you can look them up online you know but um but they're in it and we adults are i for one you know i'm i'm in the field of teaching about human sexuality and uh and i don't um I struggle with learning the the new language myself, you know, but, but the teenagers, they don't struggle with it at all. It's just like, what is? And uh, so, you know, I just feel like they have a lot to teach us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we can listen. And we can listen. Yeah. And this has been a wonderful conversation. It has been so much of a pleasure for me to read this work and then talk to you and Joan. It's been, I mean, if I could open up this book and show you right now, like my scribblings are everywhere. Like I I have just immersed myself in this work that you and Joan so painstakingly put together over the course of two years. So I would encourage everybody who hears this to go and get The Collected Letters of Alan Watts by Joan and Ann Watts put out by New World Library, and check it out and dive into this life. And what's so amazing to me about the conversation that you just had with me and that I had with Joan is that it doesn't give away any of the magnificence of the book. You know, we just talked about your stories about his life, but the letters are totally separate from these conversations. So they are definitely, these conversations are definitely not a substitute for reading the real book. Right. Great. You're so right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, Anne, if anybody wanted to find more of your work, where should they look? I have a website, www.anneewattswatts.com. So if people go there, it's the, the website is a work of art in progress because there's so much new going on for us to add to it. But um but yeah, that's where people can find out about the work that I do, um, both uh, with the Human Awareness Institute and at Esalen Institute. Um, so that's the love of my life is doing the work uh, with the Human Awareness Institute. Yeah. Thank you so much, Anne. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>